0: You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Captivate and on Patreon. You can get bonus content of our show on either of those platforms or on Apple Podcasts with a private subscription to the Amazal Ministries Podcast Network. Galatians 3, 21-29 in the New American Standard Bible is the law then contrary to the promises of God far from it for if a law had been given that was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on law but the scripture has confined everyone under sin so that promise by faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe but before faith came we were kept in custody under the law being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to christ so that we may be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. In this section of scripture, St. Paul's writing to the church of Galatea. Maybe I'm saying that right, who knows? He is explaining the purpose of the law and how the purpose of the law has been fulfilled by faith. Um, Russ Petrus, how do you believe we can all find unity in the hope of Jesus today?
1: I think my prayer, especially for all of us today, is that we can see one another as beloved children, beloved ones of God, regardless of our nationality, our gender, our race, our country of origin, our religion, that we can see each other as children of God. And then I think all of those other false divisions tend to fade away and we engage and interact with each other in a new and different and more life-giving way. Yeah.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, possibly in your top 10 church Union favorite podcast maybe i don't know i don't know what i'm doing here guys i'm one of the hosts joshua knoll i am i'm here to stutter and introduce the greatest co-host that's ever co-host anything you know not just podcast you might know game show host you might know whatever but do you know the most famous reindeer co-host of all tj tiberius Swan blackwell how's it going uh it's good
2: thanks for asking
0: yeah Yeah, we're also joined by two wonderful guests who were here in the summer that we brought back to continue our conversations of sexism in the church, systemic sexism, misogyny, um, and just empowering women and feminism. Um, Excited to have two people from Catholic Women Preach. We have um, Elizabeth Ann Donnelly and we have Russ Petrus. Uh, Did I slaughter y'all's names? I pronounce it right. All good. It's Petrus, but that's okay. It's Petrus. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Well, thank Can you guys for joining Betty us Anne? again. <laughs> yeah, all right. Thanks for joining us again, and we're excited to have you guys and to continue these conversations. Um, yeah, should be a good time. Yeah. Uh, so
2: check out the Anazow Ministries Podcast Network website. The link is below for other shows like ours, you know, our sibling shows, brother you know, Brothers, History and Christ, Brother and Sister on the AMP network. It's kind of the same thing. And uh, rate and review our show on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Hit the little thumbs up, thumbs down, four stars, one star, anything. We just like to be judged.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I prefer the fives because that gets more people to see the show. But whatever you feel is right is what you should do. And with that, um, we do have one last thing we do before – the other shows, it's kind of like in between the intro and the body of our show. It's like in this weird purgatory. Um, it's a favorite spiritual practice of mine. That is silliness, where we are going to ask a silly question. And TJ and I will answer first. Uh, give you kind of a little bit of time to think about it. TJ, if you were a sea creature, which creature would you be the least likely to be? Oh, wow. I
2: misread the question. The like two minutes of thinking I did are now completely useless um did you think it's most likely yeah yeah so that makes sense the creature i would least i'm least likely to be in the sea uh probably a blue whale or maybe a colossal squid hmm. yeah <laughs> i you just don't, don't have that the. i don't have the breath yourself? yeah
0: no yeah, yeah yeah it just wouldn't make sense i just feel like i would be least likely to be probably just really just any type of shark I just feel like I definitely would not be a shark like I'm just not that aggressive you know
2: sharks aren't that aggressive this is I not a conversation don't that much we're gonna instinct.
0: have <laughs> well yeah, yeah no, well, yeah. about shark behaviors dolphins they're too playful I wouldn't be that either I'm I'm <laughs> like a, a sad sea creature waiting for some dry British humor what's that
2: oh uh lionfish maybe
0: all right uh Russ, what is the least likely sea creature that you would be
1: well uh i've been doing some thinking about this and i'm gonna say a sea anemone uh, anemone <laughs> the thing is is i couldn't introduce yeah. myself i can't pronounce it i don't know how it's pronounced <laughs> i don't even know how it's spelled so i would yeah. not be that yeah,
2: yeah that's fair you nailed it the first time you said it though Oh, did I? You did.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Also, I think I'm least likely to be whatever TJ's answer for what he would have been was. (laughs) Because I'm not whatever TJ is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Betty, uh, which sea creature are you most likely not to be?
3: Definitely, I would not be a great white shark because it is just not in my DNA to menace or scare or be aggressive against anybody. Yeah, And we have them, See, uh, we, as you know, I, living in Massachusetts. They are an issue. <laughs>
0: I, yeah, I can imagine. Man.
3: When I go swimming, I have to look around. <laughs>
0: I, I, I
2: almost said anemone because I just I just I don't yeah. vibe with it. It's not me, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not stationary. A you know, that. <laughs> but the last time you were both on the show, we asked about your ministry with Catholic Women Preach. Uh, Could you briefly remind our listeners what your ministry is, why you advocate for what you do, and how you believe your organization makes a
3: difference? um, Thanks thanks for having us. Uh, Russ and I launched the Catholic Women Preach website in Advent of 2016. And since that time, we have over 430 short reflections, homilies, five to seven minutes by amazing Catholic women from around the world for every Saturday and Holy Day of Obligation since Advent of 2016. And Russ has designed an amazing amazing search engine. You can put a scripture reference, the name of the preacher, or a keyword like Samaritan women uh, in the search, and you freely access all this incredible rich preaching by Catholic women.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah,
0: that's
3: really cool.
2: So recently, the issues y'all deal with have become even more relevant with the recent synod meeting in Rome. Uh, could you explain what happened there and how it relates to today's conversation for us?
1: Yeah. So this meeting that happened in Rome in October is sort of the latest step in what's been uh, called the largest consultation in human history. Uh, Pope Francis called it uh, back in 2019 and uh, it started at a very local level with some listening sessions. Uh, and then those listening sessions went to each country's bishop's conference. And then the bishop's conference sent that along to Rome. And then Rome developed a, a synthesis of all of that. Uh, and then this latest iteration in October was a gathering of uh people who had been invited to sort of um, discuss some of the different issues that had been raised. What's really notable about this uh, most recent uh, meeting was that for the first time ever, 54 women were invited to participate as co-equal members uh, with a vote on the final document. Uh, So this final document that came out of this uh, synod um, raises, I think for the sake of our conversation, a lot of issues around women in the church. In fact, uh, the issues around um, women's participation in governance and ministry in the church was actually one of the only, and I think the only issue that was labeled yes. as urgent within the church. Um, so right now we're, we're back to discussing it again. We've got the results of the uh, this meeting. We, we're back to discussing it again. Uh, and then there'll be another meeting in October, 2024. So,
3: so for people who are interested,
1: <laughs> it's
3: huge for people who are interested. You can go to the website synod, S Y N O D V A, which stands for Vatican. And, um, the final document is, is the synthesis report. And then, the as Russ described, there was a working document going into it called the, in Latin, the Instrumentum Laboris. So I urge people who are interested to read both of those documents. Um, they're very rich. The final report is 40 or 41 pages. And the 350 voters had to vote on each paragraph. And each paragraph got at least two-thirds of a vote. And um, paragraphs contain 21 proposals. Um, and as Russ said, the one that was called urgent was elevating women in the ministry of the church. And now th- th- this, this report is not deliberative. It was consultative. And, but now we're encouraged to have another round of listening and discerning uh, in advance of the, of the next meeting in October, which will make recommendations uh, to Pope Francis for the church.
0: So as far as the results go, with the um, uplifting women being urgent, is that was that something proposed or is that what they came to, that they agreed that it was urgent?
1: Yes. Yeah, there, there's an agreement that it's urgent. Um, now, the specifics of that will still need to be worked out. So one of the things that's um, explicitly mentioned in the document is the possibility of ordaining women to the diaconate. Um, so right now, uh, women aren't able to be ordained to the diaconate, uh, and there is some conversation in the church right now about, uh, the history of women deacons in the Catholic church and whether or not they were ordained. And so there's all sorts of uh, debate about that. Um, from our perspective, you know, we believe that women were ordained in the, yeah. uh, in the Catholic church. Uh, and Phoebe uh, of Romans 16 is yeah. the is the only uh, person, male or female, uh, described by Paul with the title deacon. Uh, so she's the only person who is given that title. Um, Um, Now, we know that she wasn't a deacon in the way we understand deacons today, but it is notable that she is the only one who was given that description. I think we talked Mm -hmm. last Um,
3: time about, uh, there's a distinguished scholar, Phyllis Zagano, Z-A-G-A-N-O, who was on the first papal commission to talk about. She's one of the world's experts, and there's clear historical evidence that women were ordained deacons for the first millennium of the church, including abbesses of convents. Uh, But then the the term deacon came to mean a step to priesthood. Um, The permanent diaconate for men was restored at Vatican II, largely as an effort to get lay men involved. Um, uh, People in Europe, especially seeing the horror of World War II, felt that the laity had to be more, more engaged in the ministry of the church. And so similarly, we're saying, given the incredible pastoral needs at this time in the church's history, uh, why should not women be restored to the diaconate? They already are engaged in diaconal ministry around the world, yeah. especially in places like the Amazon. Why not give them the sacrament, sacramental grace of ordination?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about Phoebe here in a minute when we get to some of the systemic things that happen that have kind of prohibited women in ministry. Um, also, you know, we got to throw out. Um, was it, was it the other Mary, or was it at the uh, was it the first person that Jesus actually called to spread the gospel after he had risen?
1: Yeah. Thinking, so that's thinking, Mary right, Magdalene. Being, yeah. Mary Magdalene. Yes.
0: Yeah. So. The apostle to the apostles. Exactly. Fun stuff. But, um, yeah. So speaking of which we mentioned last interview, we had that the church has made a lot of these systemic choices that have kind of prohibited women from ministry. Um, some examples, you know, we mentioned how the word deacon is translated in a lot of English Bibles. You know, you the same word is translated deacon, deacon, deacon. And then all of a sudden you come to Phoebe and she's a servant of the Lord. And it's, um, Anyway, that's the same word. Why, why did you change it there, guys? Um, you know, we have a lot of different examples like that. But um, you know, I, we mentioned Mary, the apostle to the apostles. We kind of skip over that uh, title for her a lot of the times today. Um, what are some of the other examples you guys can think of of how the church has kind of systemized these misunderstandings about women in ministry?
3: Well, one of the one of the issues is um, as another example. Uh, in the in the 16th chapter of his letter to the Romans, Paul enumerates the male and female his colleagues that he thanks for their commitment to ministry, and he includes Junia the apostle. Apostle means one who is sent out, and so the and again oh, yeah. she is not in the lectionary, the official readings in the church of a three year cycle. So the extent to which women in the early church who were were leaders in their communities, that that memory is. Is not in our, the readings that are chosen to be presented during mass. Um, and that history has, has and, and, and then the, and the worst thing, well, not the worst thing, but also it, the way that uh, priests in, our, in the Catholic tradition are formed in, in the seminary, in many of the diocesan seminaries, they don't get much history of the role of women in the church. And that is called that. That is an interesting point like in the synod. Uh, the the do, this document, the final document, that came out of October. They're really calling for a relook at the formation of that. There needs to be ongoing theological formation for everybody engaged in ministry in the church. Everybody, lay or clergy alike, but that the yeah. formation, the seminary formation of the clergy, really has to be examined um, so that they're not clericalized yeah. and considered, you know, better than the rest of us.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I see a lot of in churches, you know, young women, like extremely young women, six, seven, eight years old, even at that age will start to be taught that they should be teaching and not leading because that's just the way the church does it. Women teach, don't lead. They, and I feel like that's yeah. one of the things that's been internalized for a lot of
0: churches and yeah. people don't even realize it. Yeah, or churches that will only hire women for like mm-hmm. high school teachings. And this is this is a little outside of the Catholic church. I don't know if they do similar things or not, but I know a lot of your Baptist Pentecost churches will do this where you hire a woman for teaching, but maybe not high school because then she's kind of correcting men. That's not okay, right? So they have this like children's okay, but afterwards – and it's kind of – I think at one point it was spoken and now our society is one where that's not okay, but it's still kind of that practice is carried on. I think a lot of times without even thinking about it um, you mentioned Julia it wasn't that also one that, or Junia that that they tried to for a long time say that was actually a man's name they like tried to change the yes, name they, a little they, bit in yeah, translation it,
1: <laughs> it was Junius <laughs> yeah Junius. yeah, they tried to because they couldn't <laughs> conceive <laughs> of a woman uh, being an apostle so they, they were like oh it must be Junius um, but yeah if you go back far enough into the manuscripts it was it was Junia yeah,
0: that's one of those sure. things that really upsets some more biblical literalist where you're like, no, sometimes they literally just go, ah, I can't be right and change a word.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like that's part of yeah, well, translating, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. You always sort of have to ask which version of the Bible, what year and when. Oh, yeah. and Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's
0: um. I think even the verse that we started with the Galatians where he, he says brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think a lot of versions just say brothers in the Lord. Right. I think they kind of added that because there was like a gender neutral terms. We're trying to figure out what's that look like in English without just masculinating everything. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, and that's a big problem. You know, I think um, in terms of, you know, these systemic issues is the language that we use, particularly when we're praying, (laughs) you know, the, the, the Bible gives us different uh, images and names for God, but we tend towards Lord and father and these sort of masculinized um, patriarchal, in my opinion uh, terms, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but you know uh, we also hear that God is mother, we hear God is weaver, we hear God is Potter. So there are both gender inclusive and sort of more gender expansive uh, language options that we can be using for God. So you know why do we stick with the masculine ones?
0: Oh, yeah. I actually made a friend really mad once because we were talking about um. Something there was something that where God was betrayed different, and I was like, "Well, God doesn't really have a body, so well, you know, I don't know <laughs> if that really should matter." He was like, "Well, you wouldn't call God mother, would you?" And I was like, "Isaiah did
3: in the Bible." <laughs> I <Right. laughs> didn't like that so much.
0: Yeah, people
2: forget. Yeah, so one of the one of the big examples we get from this is the the Billy Graham or Mike Pence rule of men not allowing themselves to be alone with a woman to avoid being accused of sin. Uh, what this ends up doing is giving men a greater opportunity for discipleship and to become ministers over women. How do we tackle that issue?
3: Well, I think that in, in at least in the US Catholic church, um, because we have a, a severe priest shortage, um, if you look at who is engaged in parish based ministry, 80% of them are women. And so it doesn't, it's, mm-hmm. it's not so much an issue for in our church, um, you know, being alone, uh, with the priest, uh, it's, I mean, Russ, what do you think? I mean, it's just, it's not,
1: yeah, I, I I have heard some stories of bishops who, um, have told folks that they won't eat with (laughs) women, (laughs) um, which is absurd, um, because isn't that what we're called to do? Um, at least as Catholics around (laughs) the the Eucharistic table table. when we have communion, um, so we're supposed to eat together but um yeah no i i think because so many women are engaged in professional ministry though undervalued and mm-hmm. underpaid uh, in the catholic church uh, it's not really an issue that i've given much thought to um yeah. in terms of how we break out of that mold where where men just don't want to associate with women
0: yeah it's interesting the there's a different dynamic between some of our Protestant churches and Catholic churches here. Um, You know, TJ and I Protestant grew up Protestant and it is one where if all of the pastors are men, it's just kind of a, and you can't meet with them without other people being around. It's hard to get that really that kind same kind of connection that guys are able to get. And that connection kind of ends up enabling opportunities because it's a lot like a job in a lot of Protestant churches where it's more, you kind of intern, you shadow the pastor and eventually kind of those opportunities rise up. And the Catholic Church, because everything's a lot more systematized, I feel like maybe I'm just I'm just curious. Do women end up going more towards other women leaders like nuns and stuff? And then that ends up being the path that they're kind of confined to? Is that kind of what happens or what's that look like in your end?
3: Well, a lot of, um, it depends, lay women, women religious, you know, a lot of women are studying to getting a master's of divinity degree or a master's of theological studies degree. A lot of women go into chaplaincy work. Um, You think of hospital chaplains, spiritual um, directors. Um, What else, Russ?
1: Uh, In in the very rare but wonderful circumstances, uh, women are empowered as and it, it, it com- it, it, the title is different in different places, but sometimes it's parish yes. life coordinator, sometimes it's pastoral um, uh, life coordinator or parish life director. These are women who have been placed at uh, churches who um, don't have, or parishes that don't have a resident priest uh, to be the pastor of that priest. Uh, so uh, sometimes women will function. As the de facto pastor, they of course have administrative roles, yeah. um, but they're they're not given any sacramental roles. Um, uh, so so that's another area where women um, have have made advances. Um, oftentimes, you will see them in that role. As religious education mm-hmm. director, religious education coordinator. Or it, um, at the encourages. diocese level,
3: they'll be and, chancellors. Um, you know, they'll be the head of the administration of the diocese. Mm-hmm. But it depends, you know, again, if we're talking of rich countries, poor countries, in much of the Amazon, women are engaged in diaconal ministry without receiving the sacrament of the diaconate. But they're doing everything but uh, consecrating the host. Mm-hmm. Officiating at wet weddings, funerals, baptizing. Um, mm-hmm. So it depends on the country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the problem in the Roman Catholic Church in particular is that any decision making or authority is constrained, uh, historically speaking, to clerics. So deacons or priests or uh, bishops. So if you're a lay person, uh, which all women are by default, uh, they don't have access to decision making. Um, they don't have access to make, um, you know, authoritative uh uh, findings um, and so you know uh, that that in and of itself is very limiting the pope is the pope
3: francis yeah, has changed that, that in the was vatican such a big he, thing. he's he has a new there's a new directive yeah. about the vatican administration that you know that women are going to be able to run departments at the vatican um, and and it's oh, cool. canon law people pointed out to us years ago that well you know, if, if a woman, a laywoman or a sister, is the principal of a, col- of, a, of a school or the head of the university, and she has priests on her staff, she's their boss. So um, uh, women do exercise oh, authority, but not um, in the context of liturgy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, why do you think all these patriarchal decisions have been made throughout church history? other than, you know, enforcing the patriarchal society.
1: Russ, why don't you go for yeah, it? Yeah, you know, it depends It depends on how <laughs> how far we want to go back. But, I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, when we think of the Jesus movement, um, you know, Jesus and his disciples and followers, it was a very egalitarian movement and it was very countercultural. Um, and I think that as the church became more established in the Roman empire. Um, It just sort of needed to become a little bit more uh, in tune or ingrained with, with the culture that was around it. And so it took on some of those characteristics. Um, And I think over time, it just sort of, um, turned in on itself and there was some point in history where it wasn't going to look outside anymore and be influenced by its culture even now you hear you know a lot of the the protests against the the reforms and the changes that um so many catholics are seeking Um, is that oh well that's just us bowing to secular society well we did it before Um, <laughs> yeah. And and it was okay to go in that direction, but why isn't it okay to go in this direction? So you know, I mean, I think from time to time, you know, some of this has been happenstance, uh, and it's just sort of the natural way things happen. But I think there are probably instances where you can look at and say, uh, "Well, that was that was a decision that someone made to protect their power." Um, so
0: yeah, yeah, and and I think, man, not not to hate on my fellow protestant founders but <laughs> the just a, a lot of this push toward literalism in the in the biblical text and stuff has dropped off some of the i think important context i mean even when we re- looking at paul's letters you know it, it's easy to see starting off where he's seeing very clear statements of there's neither male nor female right but also saying women shouldn't be priests and, and he even says such as the women of the, you know, the pagan religions around us. And like, he's kind of making that distinction. And in that context, yeah, you know that the priest of the other religions in that area are prostitutes. Mm. So it's kind of like, hmm, yeah, seems important that we don't look like that at all. And it's just like we we lost the context because we start believing that that was important and sort of believing that only the words themselves by themselves are important. And I think that's really didn't create the problem, but probably confounded it and making it a little bit harder to change that we kind of leaned into that. Um, but to get past some of the negative stuff. Well, to get further into the negative stuff, I guess, um, a lot of people get really uncomfortable or defensive. when we're talking about this kind of stuff. When we're talking about like systemic discrimination, um, really of any kind, you know, systemic racism, all this stuff, people get really defensive about the idea because they have a hard time understanding that how prejudice can be shown unintentionally or how sin could be communal. Um, You know, it's, well, I don't feel this way towards this kind of race. So how could this possibly be racism? Or I don't feel this way towards women. So how could it possibly be, you know, like they just have a hard time understanding what systemic prejudice is. And that sin can be not just an individual making a sinful choice, but a sinful culture or sinful decisions. Um, How do you guys address these concerns when they're brought up from people?
3: I think – you would hope, like what I'm getting out of this synodal process is um, the, 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 the commitment to listening to each other and listening to people's stories. And so people who have trouble with that notion of in systemic or institutional sin or racism, to ask people to open their hearts and to listen to people I had the great fortune of going on a retreat uh, in September, October to Montgomery and Selma. And I think that every person in this country should go and be required to go. And we had an hour and a half with a woman named Joanne Bland, B-L-A-N-D. She was 11 years old on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday. Yeah. And her sister, Linda Blackman-Lowery, wrote a must-read book called Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom. She was 14 on Bloody Sunday. She was brutally beaten and needed, Linda was, and needed 35 stitches. And she begged her her father, and he finally allowed her to go. She was the youngest person of the 300 who marched from Selma to Montgomery because she said, I wanted to show George Wallace my stitches, um, to hear their story, to read that book, you, you, you're, you're, I was transformed. I, I was transformed. And I think that's what we're called to do as people of faith, is to open your hearts and to listen to people's stories. And then you get it, that this is systemic. And that if, it, God, you go to the, the Legacy Museum in Montgomery mm-hmm. and you realize how the economy was completely built around slavery and the way people were incarcerated on the waiting to get on the auction block and how families were torn apart. If you're not transformed by that and you see how our entire economy had benefited from that and the rise of the industrial revolution, if you're not transformed by that, there's, you're you're not human.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know, um, not to get too controversial here, but even I think in our country, the United States, I think there was a lot of people who didn't quite comprehend the consequences to overturning Roe and starting to do these abortion bans and stuff. And regardless of what side you are on, I feel like a lot of people in the last year kind of had their eyes open to some unintended consequences from all yes. this, of people suffering, yes. of people not being able to have necessary life, yes. you know, giving surgeries where you're like, oh, that's um not quite what we meant. Not, you know, and, and that's, you know, not trying to give my side away. I'm just kind of looking at it going, yeah, I see where people on both sides are like oh yeah if we completely had our way that's not exactly great Mm -hmm. and just kind of seeing the nuance because you're forced to is tragic and i really hope that when it comes to some of these things and i think as the internet continues to grow and everything's on the internet and we all get to see everybody else's story that maybe there's some hope that we'll um see these things before terrible unintended consequences happen in the future maybe Mm -hmm. hopefully that'd be nice yeah Yeah. no so are there any other big issues
2: or topics about you know systemic women's issues in ministry that y'all would like to discuss?
1: One that I would really love to raise uh, is the issue of the cost of education um, and uh, yeah. this is particularly I, I don't I, I can't speak uh, to what some uh, other Protestant denominations do. But in the Catholic Church, at least, if you're on track to become a priest, your education, your advanced theological education is paid for by your diocese and um, you're good to go. So you, so you grad- graduate <laughs> from graduate nice. school without any debt, which isn't that wonderful. Incredible. Um, but for all lay people, and that includes women, mm-hmm. um, we have to pay for our own educations and it's getting increasingly Ooh. costly. Um, I know when, uh, when I was in graduate school, I did my Master of Divinity, and I started at the Western Jesuit School of Theology um, mm. in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then they eventually merged with Boston College and formed the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. And I remember when they made that move, one of the big points that they were always clear to make was that. Our tuition would stay at the Western rate and not go to the Boston College rate, (laughs) right? Because that was a big fear for people Mm -hmm. because our tuition, while expensive, was reasonable. Um, But, you know, Boston College was a a different story. Um, And had Mm -hmm. that tuition been um, what it was at Boston College, it would have just been completely out of reach. Um, so I, I think particularly if we're going to take, you know, lay people's participation and, um, uh, representation in church governance and in church ministry, seriously, we've got to figure something out about education. Um, because let's face it, church workers, uh, strapped with, um, You know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt aren't going to make that up in church ministry jobs. So, (laughs) yeah. yeah,
0: It was like um, during the past administration, they passed something where like if you're in law school and you start doing certain kinds of law that are basically to benefit the community that the government over so many years will pay Mm -hmm. off your school because – Yeah. All of the things that benefit, uh, humankind don't pay well. (laughs) Well, (laughs) No, just as a general rule, if you're helping people, you're not getting paid.
2: Yeah. Another issue, which I, that's why teachers don't get paid anything. Yeah. Just fits the rules. And they get their loan forgiven.
3: Another issue, which I, we, I think we raised back the last time we talked to you is the depiction of women in uh, Christian art over the centuries. And, um, often in submissive, passive, or the, the erring prostitute. Um, and so a lot of us feel that part of our work is to change the visual narrative that people see. So I, w- I always say God loved Leonardo da Vinci, but there's no way there was a Passover Seder meal where it was just Jesus and 12 guys at the meal. Um, and so we love to lift up the art <laughs> of a young yeah. African-American artist named Laura James Whose uh, art is on the cover of our Catholic women preach books, um, depicting Mary Magdalene proclaiming the resurrection, uh, depicting Mary proclaiming the Magnificat in an urban scene. Oh there, yeah, there, there's, there's a very pregnant Mary depict, um, preaching the Magnificat in an nice. urban scene. Here comes everybody, as James Joyce would say of the Catholic Church. And then our sister Peggy Bodet.: What's the artist? Laura name James? Um, she has a website. And, and actually, if if your uh, listeners go to the Future Church website, you can see uh, some of Laura's James, uh, Laura's art, and you can buy her cards, which are wonderful greeting cards. Um, and then Sister Peggy Beaudet has this marvelous frieze of Mary Magdalene proclaiming the resurrection to the male and female disciples, including Peter's wife. So um, again, uh, two I, I I say you know so many at least in Catholic contexts, probably in Protestant as well. You go to schools or churches, and the art is boring, and it's not inspirational. It doesn't provoke really thoughtful consideration. True. And I I would love to see funding for Laura or Peggy's uh, art to be put on posters everywhere and inspire, especially young people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: That's, um. we actually just did a series called uh, Ecumenical Aesthetics and we were talking about different ways that we worship in art or that art impacts mm-hmm. the church kind of stuff. Um, Man, Lord Jesus, this stuff is good. Um, Aren't they great? We, we should, if I remember, I'm going to put a link down in the show notes so everybody can kind of check out this website. Yeah, but um, I actually, I was wondering, can uh, we learned some stuff during that series? Like there's a language to iconography where the saints aren't necessarily portrayed as they looked, but rather portrayed in certain ways that, you know, if they're holding a cross, it represents being a martyr. If they have like a little patch of hair, if they're bald, it represents different things. Yes. Does that mean if a woman is wise, that uh, she has to be like bald? <laughs> like, are these things also <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> like, how does that work? Oh. sorry, i just... Uh, some of
2: the saints actually are. are women, you just can't tell because they're bald?
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, they're just all have these features because that's what iconography is
1: it's <laughs> actually mary oh wow. interesting <laughs> yeah well what you know one of the um things in at least ancient iconography is if you're looking for you might be looking for someone holding a book of gospels or like a a, a basket of scrolls and that would in, male or female that would tell you that this was a leader in the church that this was someone who was spreading the good news. This was someone who was uh, proclaiming the gospel. Um, so if you look for that in iconography, that, that, will usually let you know uh, that that person had some sort of evangelization wow. role. And then another important thing is called, it's called the Oran's position and it's sort of like, uh, the hands up at the elbows kind of yeah. making two, um, two, uh, right angles. Um, And you'll see that also in ancient Christian art um, in both women and men. And that's a that's a prayer position that would have signified some kind of liturgical leadership uh, in the early church. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's actually um, not a whole lot of research about that, but there's more and more uh, women who are turning uh, to the art of the early church because the the written historical record isn't necessarily, um, trustworthy, mm, yeah. but the, the art, um, is, um, because, you know, you, you, can't, <laughs> uh, although in some cases they have changed yeah. the art. Um, but there's, there's just a, a trove of art that shows that women were in leadership, uh, roles in the early church. And actually, uh, Christine Shanks. Yes. Um, do you have the Do you have the title of her book? A magnificent yeah. book. It's called "Crispina and Her Sisters." Uh, C R I S P I N A and her sisters. And there's a subtitle about uh, women and authority in the early church. I don't yeah. quote me on that, but um, and the the author's last name is Shank. S C H E N K. And she's and she's done some really groundbreaking work uh, on particularly funerary art. Uh, so, what were people putting on their tombs? Um, oh,
3: Crispina and her sisters: Women and yeah. Authority in Early Christianity by Sister Christine Shank, CSJ, and she spells Shank S C H E N K. Quite authoritative. Man,
0: that's cool. Yeah, that actually. I mean, I'm glad I asked because so there was other ways to kind of depict these things in the iconography other than just. Bald means this. There's other ways to depict it. They don't have to have the women be bald. <laughs> and, yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. It's good to know. Also, yeah, I guess I just wonder, we do change the words a lot as we go down. It is a little bit harder to change some of that, uh, the art that's preserved and handed down like that. Yeah, that's really useful. So that being said, um, we do one last thing before we get to our outro kind of stuff. And we like to ask everybody... We do a couple things actually, but we like to ask everybody, um, if you had to give a single tangible action that someone could go do right now that would better help the unity of the church, what's something that people could stop and do now that would promote Christian unity?
1: Russ? I guess I'd return to, I guess I'd return to what I said at the top of the show, which was about seeing each other first and foremost as children of God. And so I'd invite um, everyone to take some time to revisit an interaction that they had, that they're not satisfied with how it went and revisit that through the lens. The other person, the other person next to me, in front of me, the person on the other side of the computer screen is a child of God. And what does your conscience tell you you need to do? Do you need to reach back out to that person? Do you need to apologize? Do you need to reevaluate? Um, it's something that, um, I think, particularly right now, with the divisions that are so uh, turning so violent um, in our yeah. world, that we could probably all benefit from, myself included.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, that's good. That's good. I, um, I would um, uh, same question. How would you answer that?
3: I would a- ask people to Google um, the expression "conversations in the spirit." That was the process which they used at the meeting in Rome in October. So they had round tables of like 10 to 12 people. And um, they would begin with silent prayer. And then um, they would ask each other, now, how would you like to be called in our conversation by, you know, by your first name? And then the, the question at hand, each person at the table would be given three minutes to reflect, to say what they thought about it without being interrupted, No no interruptions. Then there was a period of prayer and silence and then another round in which you were encouraged to say what did i hear what did i hear from the other people around the table What's, what what stood out to me what is the holy spirit calling us to do so it's a it's a deeply contemplative thoughtful process and then there was another round of free conversations so the, this whole thing about synodality and synod it's a it's a commitment to deeply listening to each other and, and similar to what Russ said, that if we really, if I can come out of this just listening more intently and in the spirit, um, it's a grace and that's going to help bridge our divides.
2: Hmm. Yeah, sure. So what what do we see change in the world if everyone starts doing these things, both, you
1: know, listening intently, what happens? Well, you know, I, I look out, you know, right now at what's going on in the Middle East with Israel and Hamas. And I can't begin to um, claim that I have any deep understanding of, of what's going on over there. Um, but I I do believe that um, somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost that sense that we're all inhabitants of this earth. We're all children of God. We're all beloved. And um, I think if, you know, all of us could... Could start there, that all of our interactions, all of our engagement would be very different, um, you know. And I and I see this even in the in in the United States as we have conversations about this. Um, you know, we tr- tend to ascribe first and foremost motives and um, politics and everything else. But if we can first ascribe child of God, I think mm-hmm. I think we just end up in a very different place. Mm. All yeah. right. I so just say before we wrap that. up,
2: we like to ask everyone to share a moment that they saw God in. Yep. Right. Now, where we saw God recently, whether that is a blessing or a challenge or a moment of worship, whatever it may be, I uh, always make Josh go first so that the rest of us can have uh, more time to think. So, Josh, do you have a God moment for us?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, this last weekend, I had a friends giving and a lot of few. Older friends and newer friends and different people come over and we were able to, you know, eat turkey. My favorite holiday, we were able to celebrate together. Um, then today, actually, I recorded a episode about how I met your mother slaps giving episode. Um, for our other podcast, systematic ecology, we're talking about, um, just how I met your mother and Thanksgiving. We're recording our Thanksgiving special and just reflecting on the things we're thankful for, for that show this year, reflecting on, um, My friends who were there, you know, we had a lot of friends who've been there every Friendsgiving. We had a few friends who have never been to one before. And I think the thing that challenged me was I have felt very much like I'm doing the same old things over and over. And then actually looking at my year, realizing I started a whole new kind of school. I have whole new friends. I have been to two Comic-Cons this year for a podcast. I have never been to Comic-Con at all before this. And just realizing there's a lot of new in my life that I just hadn't recognized as such. So, um, just kind of the challenge to recognize what I'm doing, what I'm having a little bit better and, um, being more thankful. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Awesome. Uh, I'll go next for me. Uh, I also went to Friendsgiving. I was there.
0: (laughs) Whoa.
2: Yeah. I, I'd hate to cheat, but you know, (laughs) God got us there safe. Everything went well. I saw
0: you. All the food was good. So. Oh, thanks. Yeah. This one guy brought ratatouille, and I found out I really like ratatouille, <laughs> which is weird because I don't like most of the ingredients in ratatouille.
2: Yeah, I don't like it. I'm the one that yeah. cooked it. So, <laughs> Betty Ann, do you have a God moment for us this week?
3: Yes, definitely. Uh, last Thursday, I went to Boston College for the funeral of one of the advisory on our advisory board of Catholic Women Preach, a theologian named Richard Gayardi. When you look at his name, it looks like Gallardette's. But he was a very distinguished theologian who was really passionate about a, a transformed church in which the ministries of all the baptized are re- fully recognized and valued. And he um, had a 20-month battle with pancreatic cancer, and he left his wife and four adult sons and their, their partners. Um, and it was such an outpouring of affection and tribute to him. And uh, to have that ability to be together. And to especially the the theology community at BC, and the lives that he had transformed, and brilliant preaching by both uh, Richard Linan in the homily and his his uh, longtime colleague Sandra Derby from undergraduate days about how he lived and fully embraced the Paschal mystery of our of our of our dying and diminishment and yet our rising in Christ with very profound hope. So it was marvelous. And I'm, I also happen to be reading uh, Jim Martin's book right now, uh, Come Forth, which I highly recommend to people. Um, come Forth, the promise of Jesus' greatest miracle about the raising of Lazarus. Um, so I'm in that zone right now of, um, of dying and resurrection. Maybe it's the time of year. Ooh.
0: yeah, yeah. Tis the season.
2: Yeah. It's time. Uh, Russ, do you have a God moment for us?
1: Yeah. So before I was involved with Future Church and Catholic Women Preach, I was a pastoral minister uh, in parishes. And um, my my life was being with and among people in the same space. Um, and even though that was years ago, from time to time, I find myself missing Uh, ministering in that kind of a place, Um, you know, because so much of what I do now is over the internet. (laughs) Um, And so it's in Zoom spaces and, you know, putting videos out there. But I recently got an email um, from someone and it was at one of those times when I was like aching for for that role. And uh, her email to me was about how she Felt like she lived in a a bit of a spiritual desert um, where she felt like she couldn't contribute, where she she wasn't valued, where her voice wasn't heard. um, And she felt very isolated and being a part of our communities, our virtual communities, um, re-energized her and gave her hope. Um, And that just touched me in a way that um, re-energized me. And um, helped me to see um, just how important our ministries are, uh, Mm -hmm. especially for those people um, who are out there in places and spaces where they don't feel like they can participate, where they don't feel like their voice, Mm -hmm. um, they can contribute their voice, or where they feel like they don't have value. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was just a really affirming moment for me. And I, and I very much felt God, um, bringing both of us together in that moment.
2: Yeah. It's awesome. awesome. All right. Uh, thank you to so much for being here today, coming on the show again, and thank you all for listening. Uh, please consider sharing it with a friend, uh, or an enemy, uh, or a cousin you can share it with anybody. <laughs> and if you're listening on the YouTube channel, make sure to hit like, and subscribe. Boost us. Get us out there. Spread the word. I'll send you a penny in the mail. It's really worth
0: it. Yeah. A whole, the the sending part costs more than the giving them a penny part. Though. It does, yeah. 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 Also, the copper in a penny is worth more than your penny. Yep. American money is dumb. <laughs> anyway, um, support our other podcasts on the Anna Ministry Podcast Network. Check out some of those other shows. I do one, Dummy for Theology um, we have friends that do the Bible after hours of my seminary life. Um, of course, TJ and I are both part of systematic ecology, talking about uh, where faith and fandom collide. Sounds like a name of a really cheesy, like it is parody really skillet cheesy. song. Yeah. Parody yeah. skillet song. Weird Al doing skillet right there.
2: Yeah. Free idea. Yeah. Weird Al, except it's not free. <laughs> you have to pay us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we'll be back with return. Weird Al. you
0: hope you enjoyed it?
2: No, weird. Well, if he's listening. Uh, yeah. 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 OK. <laughs> Uh, We'll be back next week with Dr. Tom Horde to discuss differing opinions on the omniscience of God. Uh, Next, we'll be interviewing Pete Innes about differing opinions on the inerrancy of Scripture and how it didn't come to beer camp and how Christians can work together even if they disagree on three issues. Then we get to go back to roundtables uh, with a discussion on church polity. And at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us.
0: Yeah, he doesn't know that yet, though. It does not. Someone's got to tell him. He yeah. desperately needs someone to give him the, the yes. info, you know? Someone needs to send it. In him fact, if link. you could create the link for the call and send it to him and us, that'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, listeners. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Again, you could always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash The Whole Church Podcast or on Captivate.fm, or on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a one-time tip through Captivate. Thank you for listening.